Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Justine Kurland. But before we get to the show, I recently realized that it's been a long time since I begged and begged and begged listeners to give the program a five-star rating and a good review wherever you download the show. All that really helps us in the algorithm, and it helps people find the show. Thanks very much. The Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford recently acquired a complete vintage set of Justine Curlin's 69-picture Girl Pictures suite, made between 1997 and 2002, and has installed it in the museum's 1934 Avery Court. As you may know, that building is known for having the first international-style spaces of any American art museum. The exhibition is on view through August. Curlin's series presents a fictional, semi-narrative of an empowered, self-sufficient, ever-traveling community of young women. It's a feminist recasting of the long tradition of adolescent and vagabond narratives that typically foreground boys and young men. Aperture published the entire series in a book that includes a story by Rebecca Bengel. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about $47. Justine Kurland for the full program, after the break. I'm delighted to announce the next Modern Art Notes podcast live taping. It'll be with artist Monique Verdun at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University on February 16th. Verdun is among the artists featured in Spirit in the Land, a forthcoming Nasher exhibition that examines present ecological concerns from a cultural perspective and that demonstrates how our identities and natural environments are intertwined. We'll be presenting the live taping in association with the folks at the Nasher at 4 p.m. on Thursday, February 16th, the day the exhibition opens to the public. Please join us for Monique Verdan and Spirit in the Land on February 16th at the Nasher. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Mark DeSuvero Steel Like Paper, an exhibition that explores the artist's six decades long career and monumental vision. Plan your visit to see more than 30 sculptures presented alongside rarely seen drawings. Get tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. On view through February 19, 2023, at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Uta Barth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s, through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s, to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina 
presents Beyond the Surface, collage, mixed media, and textile works from the collection. Beyond the Surface explores how artists bring together disparate materials and ideas to create artworks that engage with all audiences. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision, whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. And we're back. Justine Kurland, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. We're talking on the occasion of girl pictures going on view for most of 2023, actually, at at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. What do you think exhibiting the full suite together does? What does it let the viewer see or understand differently than kind of the usual way, which is one or two or three or four of them being exhibited together? I'm so excited about this showing at the Wadsworth. It's phenomenal. There's so many reasons why that particular museum, that venue makes so much sense for the work. Most of the work started like a 45 minute drive from Hartford. I started when I was at Yale in New Haven, which is very close to Hartford. And a lot of the earlier images were in spots underneath the overpasses where 95 and 91 intersect, which is kind of halfway between Hartford and New Haven. The work spans seven years, many, many states across the United States, a range of themes, but bringing them all together, I mean, it it creates a, you know, unity of of the work. It's It's like an opera. It's like all of these different parts and pieces feed on each other and kind of draw energy from each other. So it's it's a fun it's phenomenal. And the specific prints that they have there, the Wadsworth acquired the set of vintage prints that was printed contemporaneously. So I would go on these road trips and I would come back and I would make prints and 11 by 14 sizes that were like they were my special prints. So when I've exhibited them before, I've made these large exhibition prints, 30 by 40 inches which, you know, is great to see a large print. I was very excited to be able to, that was when I was printing them, that was the the largest I could do myself. I would print them myself in these rental dark rooms. But really for me, the 11 by 14 was like the size that they existed for for just for me. So there's something really personal about those those prints. That's very photographer, liking the 11 by 14's best. You can see on my wall, I mean, I guess it's like, there's just boxes and boxes of that Kodak 11 by 14 box, which is where I would store, I store my negatives and prints. And it's like all of, all of my thinking about what I'm doing happens at that scale. You know, you can hold it and really look at it in a, in an intimate way. Kind of like the book size, actually. The earliest picture in the series, this is amazing to me, is now a quarter century old, which I hadn't really fully processed until I started preparing for us to talk. The the pictures and their philosophical point of view seem as fresh and as of the now as when I first saw them all those years ago. And I think that that is not, you know, I think that's a common way of, of seeing them. And I think that that could live in one of two ways. One as a marker of the artist's success, right? The series not only holds up, 
but it addressed and addresses ideas and histories and gender and age constructions that are a certain kind of timeless. Yay. Mm. On the other hand, maybe majoritarian society hasn't shed centuries-old constructs as quickly as you and I would like. Mm. So as you think about all these pictures coming together in a single place, do you have any kind of internal discourse with yourself about the series and its relationship to definitions of success? Oh, I I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that question because I was like <laughs> thinking about like, you know, where where we are, you know, right now, and and the way that the pendulum swims swings back and forth between like the world feeling like more progressive and more, you know, civil rights and freedoms becoming available to more people, and then it swinging the other way where, you know, when we were conceiving that show, and I was talking to the Wadsworth, it was you know at the height of the Me Too movement and right after they acquired it, then the abortion ban with the Supreme Court, you know, so it's like this question of like how the importance of that work to me more than anything is about, you know, the solidarity and community among women fighting for equal rights. It's funny that that's, um, but as far as a success goes, I mean, I I feel like I have a horseshoe up my butt or something. Like I feel like I, I pinch myself that I, I'm so grateful to be, you know, given the platform that I've been given and, you know, feel really great. Yeah, just grateful for all of the support I've received from institutions, but also my colleagues and and the girls in the pictures, you know, it's just, it's really just a, been a kind of phenomenal journey, which is not to say there's also like in the 25 years since I made those pictures, you know, there are times in that period where like no one's heard my name I'm like you know like strapped to pay my rent you know it's it's not a linear trajectory by any means but I do feel like this Wadsworth is like this moment of of having those pictures all together in a museum setting in the place that they are in the museum that's like everything to me is like I couldn't have imagined I couldn't have asked for more it's a very specific centering so you never in your own mind think about or think through the kind of weird dichotomy that the series is a near complete and total artistic success, even as America has advanced maybe less toward a utopia in certain ways than we would all like. I don't want to like generalize too far about pain and suffering and like political injustice and the state of the world in general. But I think that the thing about making work is it's like for me it's more of the thing like a broken clock is right twice a day someone once told me that in times of recessions where the market is not gonna like you know isn't isn't going really strong for like the blue chip artists that's when it's really that's when the art market starts really looking at social justice Mm -hmm. issues and and more political work and that's when women and people of color and queer artists get a moment to have some, you know, screen time or floor time or wall time or whatever it is. So, yeah, I I just think that sometimes we need certain artworks. And I think right now we need girl pictures, but in the way that we need it isn't because like, oh, I was so smart to make this thing that we needed. It's just like a, for me, it's like a, a, just an intersection of, of two, two things. Like I continue to make work on road trips. I continue to think about women in various different ways. 
but it's there's something about that specific body of work that's like really has nothing to do with me it's more of a zeitgeist about like what like if I think about you know Masa Asini and uh, you know that Iranian or or like Breta Thurnberg or I said her name wrong I know or the Parkland kids you know like there's this there's this thing that's happening right now where a lot of the civil rights and and climate movements are are happening with children you know like it's incredible weight on their shoulder that they they're the ones that are like you know forefronting this urgent necessity for change so that i i couldn't have ever imagined when i'm making the the pictures you know but i think that there's there's something about being having the agency of an adult like when you're a teenager like having the you know the all the faculties, the ability to have agency in the world, but also being freed from the kind of complicity of being entrenched in certain systems that is a really powerful place. I think that that was why I wanted to photograph teenage girls, but I I think that it's kind of come even more into fruition. I think about what's what's her last name? Amanda Gorsuch. Is that her name? The the poet laureate? Oh, yes. Yeah. There's just like these incredible young women who are just like, you know, have so much to say. So it's just, it's in, it's interesting also thinking about that as someone who's like now in my mid fifties, where I'm like super happy to hand the baton, you know, I, I hope they can clean up this mess because it's tough. So, says she who is still making work. Yes. Um, <laughs> one of the most straightforward things about the pictures, which as you noted a moment ago, were made over a seven year period in the late between the late 90s and the early, very early aughts, is that they're pretty much all made outside in the outdoors. That's certainly too consistent across the series to have not been conceptually central. Mm -hmm. So how did you arrive at the idea that they all had to be outdoors? Well, there's a bunch of things going on at once. I mean, the kind of general theme of of the work, the, the idea of these teenage girl runaways was about going out into the world. When I was studying at Yale, there was this mantra about documentary photography Mm. being about the world. Mm. And then I also learned when I was in graduate school, because I grew up in New York City, I learned how to drive. So I had access to landscape at all at the same time. And I was really influenced by the idea of 19th century. We were talking about Carlton Watkins, but I was really interested in this idea of 19th century landscape photography. I mean, forget about the genocide of indigenous peoples, but the way that the camera, you know, this idea of the commanding view or oh, what were some of those other terms? So this idea that the, that, that the camera received these kind of utopic versions and that the camera was like a container for like building a world. And so it seemed if I started indoors that the world was already built, that there are so many signifiers in an interior space of, you know, type of choices of lifestyle of, of, again, that complicity, like how, how we're participating in culture that are already too entrenched in. That being said, I think one of the mistakes that landscape mm. photographers or my students, maybe I should say more like younger photographers make when they photograph the landscape is it's not a tabla rasa. There's no, I mean, I guess there is like maybe one little teeny place in Northern California that is untouched by 
yeah, not even. Yeah. So it's not like, it's not like this land hasn't been cultivated and owned and, you know, transformed in all sorts of different ways, but it seemed like in allowing the girls to populate these areas, mostly the pictures happen in between urban and suburban and industrial spaces that there's this little bit of like liminal space. I hate using that word because it's so arty, but there's this kind of in-between area that interstitial interstitial. That's a good word. I, where, I can pull where, out the academic words too, <laughs> but there was some, there was some kind of, there could be some kind of room that wasn't claimed. And so it was about finding places that weren't already claimed. I think that there's something interesting like if I were to think about what my sources were I would love to find like a matrilineal art history that I'm I'm drawing from and I think about reading Tanishi Coates Between the World and Me the the book that's the letter to his son he's talking about being at Howard University and while he's at Howard University wanting to find who the black Shakespeare is and he realizes at a certain point that Shakespeare is the black Shakespeare in other words the gifts, the the invention, the history is available to everyone. So so I think that there's there's something about how we build language together. And even as its language is changeable and history is changeable and we can recenter who we're talking about, that there's there's interesting ways that we're going to talk about that in a minute when we talk about the pictures Casper, your son, is in. Oh, yeah. But a couple more things on on the girls before we get there. With the exception of a very small handful of pictures, like two or three pictures at the end of the 2020 version of the book, the one Aperture published, pictures like Golden Field, Girls in Sand, and Forest Fire. With the exception of pretty much those three, the girls are all white. Was that intentional, accidental, incidental? So it wasn't not intentional, but it was also like, I guess it wasn't intentional in the sense that, yeah, I, I asked girls from a wide, diverse demographics to be in the photographs. And it's really vulnerable, right? To get in a car with a stranger and to be driven to some out of the way location. So or under or under an overpass or, you know, yeah. even if it's not out of the way is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Yeah. yeah. So often, you know, it was white girls that were willing to come with me. And when I would find a girl who was willing to come, I'd say, like, bring your friends. And white girls' friends are often other white girls. Also, when I was traveling around, the United States is so segregated. And so the areas where I ended up, ended up being in white areas, you know, where I felt like, you know, it's just, it's, it's, not to say that I'm uncomfortable in black neighborhoods, but it's just, you know, I'm going around, I'm asking people to be in my pictures. It seemed like I was more successful when I went to places where people looked like me. So all of that is like kind of horrible. I feel horrible about all of that. It's like the biggest regret of my book is that it doesn't mm -hmm. represent more people of color is like, I mean, there's a lot more to say about that as well, because I think at the time when I was making those pictures, I was coming from, you know, a, a type of identity politics from the 80s, which was really more about staying in your own lane, like that white people photograph white people and black people photograph black people. And it's exploitive to to cross lanes. Right. That was like kind of the the gist of of how I was you know, that if, and there was also this thing about the girls being a surrogate for myself, you know, so 
Mm-hmm. It kind of worked out that it was white and it seemed like at the time that that was fine. But now looking back, like that book is in Walmart, you know, it's crazy. I had no idea when I was making that book that it would be spread out. So the biggest sadness of that book is that it's not a book that black girls or people of color can come and see themselves in, in the book. So the reason why when I sequenced the work, I put the forest fire picture at the end was as a a type of baton that it's like, you know, I think that I would love to see a black artist make uh, girl pictures black of, of black girls or people of color. And just recently, in fact, there was this really amazing show that I saw at Newark at the, it's part of Rutgers University. They have this exhibition space called Express Newark. It was called Picturing Black Girlhood. And it was basically like the answer to, to that problem, you know? So I was really, really happy to see that. And, and also to think about like, it's in that show, it's very, it's a very different scenario to grow up as a black girl in the United States where your childhood is often taken away from you there was a film about Letitia I'm forgetting her last name but it's it's a really horrendous story of a girl who went into a grocery store and stole a $1.99 carton of orange juice and was shot dead you know and that the person you know the police didn't go to jail or anything you know it's like that kind of story you know so it's like I think it means some something different and the girl photographs also I'm projecting so much of my own fantasy it's not about reality at all it's not about what it would be to be a teenage girl it's not about what it would be to be a runaway it's my projected imaginings of what you know a kind of lesbian separatist although I wasn't even thinking about lesbian but I, what a community of women would look like together you know so I think that element is really strong and clear in the work and is probably a clarity that gets lost as we're talking and as people aren't necessarily looking at all 69 at the same time we're talking. I mean, I guess one other thing, I mean, I I, I guess I'd add two things to to maybe what you just said. One, you know, when you're a 25 year old Yale student without anything to point to that says accomplishment, achievement, and seriousness, it's always going to be harder to get people out, people you don't know, or people outside Mm -hmm. your immediate cohort to buy in. And so I thought of that. I've thought of that as I as I look through the pictures. And then the other part is I think of the identity politics you mentioned as being, you know, really Clintonian. And you are starting this series basically at the end of the the Clinton era. And you know, I think whiteness scholars if they haven't already will find a lot both in the pictures and, you know, for that matter in 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 what you just said. So we we dabbled in art history a moment ago, and because I'm a nerd, we're going to take a full turn here. I don't want to go through all of the pictures, but there are a few things I'd like to raise in regard to some specific pictures of yours and some specific paintings. And I guess as a way into that, I, I, I maybe want to undermine my own address a little, because the two things I've thought about most as I've been looking at the pictures lately are, are these. I've thought a lot about Tom Sawyer. And I've thought a lot about Leave it to Beaver. Classic American stories, one of them a series, I guess sort of Tom Sawyer a series too in a different way, about boys living in their own worlds, more or less. One of them with adults, one of them not really. And and so we're going to talk about art history, but were there other cultural targets of which you were mindful as you conceived the series? Well, there's, you know, Agnes Varda, The Wanderer. There's, there's this great film called Out of the Blue that was 
Dennis Hopper made. It's such a strange film with Linda Mance, isn't it? She's she's it's this amazing film where she ends up killing her father at the end of the film. Spoiler. I love Catcher in the Rye. That that's such an amazing. What's the film like? Stay Golden Pony Boy, also a book. From time to time on this program, I reveal that I haven't watched a movie in twenty years. Oh, so. <laughs> you know, this is this is a film from the seventies. <laughs> it's it's about the 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 greasers. One of the kid kills one of the like the fraternity boys in the town, like one of the rich kids in the town. So so the two kids like go off an abandoned building. Super sad, and it was written by a woman. Essie Hunt Hutton is the writer. It's just so, gone. But yes, so work, man, works in which kids movies. have agency. Well, there's also like, so I didn't grow up with a television. So leave it to be very, I, I would, I would watch television at my friend's house avidly, but I don't think that they have them anymore, but there was the TV after school special, which were oh, yeah. always these kind of dramas about teenage, teenagers getting into trouble, whether it was like drugs or, you know, whether they ran away from home, there was all of these, and it was always this morality tale, you know, it was like meant to teach kids to stay in line, but it just made you want to do drugs and run away, you know. Scooby-Doo made me want to solve mysteries, so yeah. Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) Harriet the Spy made me want to solve mysteries. Oh, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) I mean, I guess the other obvious one is probably Lord of the Flies, but mm-hmm. um, yes, Lord of the Flies, for sure. And when I started making the the pictures and thinking about, it's almost more like as I as I started making the pictures, I I I delved into this very specific fantasy of my my own, and then I would find I would kind of dig around and kind of research and and kind of remember like, oh yeah, and kind of pull at threads of where these narratives have existed in other places and often it was about turning Mm. the male protagonists into female protagonists for my but the way I think an artist builds language is by finding references like you can't like the only reason I know a plant is a plant is because it, it shares other things that other you know that it has a stem and leaves and that's you know I can I can we can all agree on something because of that. So I'm I'm very interested in how myths, folk tales, movies, art history, how it all kind of reoccurs in this kind of endless echo chamber in ways that we can we can find patterns and in finding patterns, you know, kind of rope towards meaning or something, you know. You know, I think that leads to one of the strengths of the series, which is that it doesn't go matchy matchy with art history. You know, the address is loose enough to let your characters, if I can call them that for the purposes of, of the moment, to own the narrative in their picture and and their own, almost often independent of the art historical comparison. And I think that's, you know, I think of um, like one of my favorite, this is really as, as any of the 69 pictures get to being matchy matchy is the picture 12 point buck from 99 and Thomas Cole's The Hunter's Return from 1845, where you really do sort of literally pull a scene out, you know, maybe 10 square inches out of a 300 square inch picture or something. I mean, a small part of the picture and make it the subject of your picture. And I thought maybe that one was a good one to maybe start with. Why two men? Why a hunt? Why Thomas Cole? And then also maybe why taking a, a, a clip of something that was successful? The hunt was successful. The The, the buck is on the spit it's not a spit it's on you know a rail why all of that well so I wasn't aware of the Thomas Cole when I made that not at all 
Yes, not at all. That's just a coincidence. But I mean, I think maybe one where I, I was aware of was maybe Thomas the Thomas Eakins and the swimming picture might be a kind of um, oh, I was thinking yeah, about sense. like the Corbet uh, burial at Ornan. Yeah. There's a picture of yours, Armadillo Burial from 2001. Yes. That is yes. a, I don't want to say, I mean, like campy is not the right word because it's definitely not the right word. It's a very American <laughs> contemporary, I don't know, send up yes. might be a better word, yes. of Corbet's Burial at Ornan. Yes, that totally, totally, I, I was aware of that. But with the, with the Hunter one, so I made a lot of photographs in Virginia around where my mother moved. She lives in Floyd, Virginia, which... I know it well. Oh, yeah. Very close to Asheville. So I don't know if Asheville was part of this, but Edgar Casey, who was a clairvoyant from the 20s, made these geographic geographical maps of psychically safe areas in Floyd, Virginia, mm is one of them. And so there were a whole bunch of back to the lander communes built up because of these Edgar Casey prophecies hmm. specifically. And so the girls in that picture lived on a commune where they hunt for, for deer. So someone had caught that amazing, hmm. had killed that amazing buck, but that, you know, they were going to eat it. So I just, I just used it as a, you know, I wanted to think about like if these girls were, you know, the idea is that it, like the first pictures came in more urban areas, but as the photographs progressed, I went to more and more of these bucolic and Edenic areas. And I wanted the pictures to be more of how the girls created community together, how they how they lived and ate. And so I wanted I wanted pictures of hunting or foraging or, you know, survival. Um, and this, of course, was before all of the survival TV shows. So now it's like it has another level of reference because of of that. But so it was just it was just to imagine that the girls were were hunters, you know, and that they because how how else would they have food if they were living in the woods? So it was a very simple That's, like here's a deer. I'm gonna like you know I happened to be there when they caught this deer, and I'm gonna make an image around it. But again, it was a man who who made that picture, and that deer was the reason the deer is so heavy. It was very difficult, but it's hard to tell. But one of the girls has a T-shirt on that says party naked, which I think is also kind of hilarious. Uh, um, it's a green shirt against yeah. the brown wood. So it really, it really pops. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Corbet's burial at Ornan a moment ago, or maybe we both did. I think a lot of the discourse around the girl pictures is your address of American art history. I think mm -hmm. there's a whole lot of European art history in it too. Why was that Corbet a picture that rose to mind? I think like, you know, I live in New York and I go to the Met and, you know, you find yourself attracted to certain types of pictures rather than other types of pictures. There's something really narrative about Courbet's pictures that like they're, they're accessible to me in a way where like a Claude Lorraine picture might be like too academic for me to like really want to like ordered or formalized in a way for me there's also things about Corbet's paintings where maybe they have these kind of religious overtones but they're not overtly Catholic I'm half Jewish mm -hmm. and have a real aversion to like Catholic symbology although I do think there is one very Catholic picture in the series which one um, uh, boy torture oh, hanging oh true um, which I think is is an ecce homo Sorry, I interrupted. No, there's someone. Wait, who made the painting? Like, I didn't know about that painting before I made that hanging picture, by the way. I don't think there is a, a hanging. There is. Homo. Oh, there's there is? A, yes, there is. Someone showed it to me and I was like, whoa. Wow. 
Yeah. I, I was just thinking of the it's not well known. Subject, it's theme. not a well-known painting, but it's that was a crazy picture to make. I don't know where how I dreamed up of that, but there's actually a friend of mine is with me, this guy who's really strong, because it's like the girls, I didn't want them to like risk pulling him and then dropping him on his head. That would have been like a really a bad thing. But I we didn't I didn't know, you know, like that it actually really hurts to be hung by your to be hung upside down. And so the kid was like totally into doing it. This kid, Pablo, was really into doing it and was friends with all those girls and everyone. We were all having a good time making it. But I think I made one picture and then it was like, okay, no, this doesn't work. And then we stopped. But I wish you'd had a documentary crew following you around. (laughs) It's really wild 20 years later. Literally just tied a rope around his legs and hoisted him up. Like in the movies, they have like all sorts of like harnesses so that the weight is distributed in a way that's not going to yeah, we didn't know what we were doing. It was really not a good idea to do that. Don't try it at home. <laughs> one more European reference before we come back to the U.S., although I could do two, but let's just do one. Your Girl in Fog from 2001 sure feels to me like you're Casper David Friedrich. Mm-hmm. You know, I named my son after Casper David Friedrich, but I spelled it wrong. I, I by accident named him after the ghost because I, I I don't know how to spell kind of works with uh, Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog, though, doesn't it? True, true, true. <laughs> so that one is a Friedrich then. Yes, yes. When I was editing for the Highway Kind book, the editor that I worked with is this amazing woman, Denise Wolf. And, you know, because I love that German romantic so much, I love that so much, to talk about my, di- she calls them distant dudes, because I was photographing a lot of men then. So she, that was like, when we were editing, it was like, it's kind of like you can't have too many distant dudes in a row in a book sequence, you know? So was, <laughs> that's what that's what we term the, the David Casper Friedrich in a... There's a lot of capital R romanticism across all the pictures. Yeah, um, kind of a very feminist take on American transcendentalism, which I will leave alone because Lord knows I do that too much on this program. No, um, I, I, that's that's super fair. I mean, just to, to say one thing about the romanticism is... You know, it's been really kind of poo-pooed. Like when I was a student, the idea of pictorialist photographers was really bad news. You couldn't be a pictorialist because it, it meant that it was a photograph pretending to be another medium. It was a photographer pretending to be a painting. And because the program I went to school was so site-specific, photographs should do what photographs do and paintings should do what paintings should do. And the tableau is the realm of the painting. And the reason why the tableau works is because every time the painter puts brush to canvas, they put the whole composition at risk, yada, yada, yada. So you don't, you're not supposed to do that. But for me, the reason why romanticism is such an important movement and such an important part of my work is because it it centers how things feel. And I think that for me, in the visible world of photography, there's so much you can't photograph, but things can feel a certain way. So there's all this whole range of emotion or a kind of a sounding that's no as an as an Emersonian, <laughs> the the relationship between emotion and nature and the land and capital R romanticism trumpets out of the pictures just as the trumpets out of the 19th century. I, I guess to that end, my maybe my favorite art history moment in the entire series is a picture from 2001 called The End. Um, oh, yeah. It's a picture in... <laughs> so listener, um, we are taping this over Zoom, uh, which we don't usually do, but sometimes we do. And it is making my day when Justine lights up and immediately knows where I'm going before I can say it. 
the end from 2001, which for me is, um, well, so the picture was made in, I think, Southern Arizona um, in a saguaro cactus national forest or park. And for me, it is a gloriously giant middle finger to Asher Duran's kindred spirits. You know, the two figures on the rock looking out over expanding United States dominion over land and people. And your picture refutes that in every way, including the primariness of the people as opposed to the primariness of the landscape. Well, let me let me just really quickly ask, why did, I mean, you clearly decided you wanted to do kindred spirits. What about it did you want to address and take on and I, I think refute, if you will? Well, I think that you nailed it in this this sense of decentering a human experience that the there's the kind of idea of like looking over your domain or something and that like this is all mine but then when, once you pull back far enough you realize that you're just an ant right like so there's something about thinking about scale in a different way and yeah i i yeah i'm glad <laughs> yeah i'm glad you caught that most people don't even see the figures in that landscape they're so tiny and it also goes back to this idea of the romanticism, because I think that the kind of the mm. bad idea of romanticism is that it is a, a kind of overly sentimental, overly narcissistic type of yeah. uh, perspective. But what I'm talking about, like if you really read like Frankenstein and when they're talking about the terror of the landscape um, at the end where, you know, Frankenstein is chasing the monster it's that it's incomesperate, right? Like that it's were nothing. And like, if you even think about like, you know, just the Anthropocene, like, I mean, even though we've, we've you know, massive genocide, massive climate change, massive destruction, it's the world's going to go on without us. It doesn't care that we die. You know, it's not like, and I, I have a, a deep, deep ambivalence to this centering of of the human subject which of course into this kind of off to the side also because of my mother who is you know my mom's a hippie and so I think about like the 60s as a moment of political action a, a call to action where people go out on the street they change the laws they they protest they you know they they make corrections. And I think of the 70s, and my mom is actually too old to be a hippie, but she is a 70s hippie in the sense of this kind of interiority where the goddess is within. And the problem with the goddess being within is that anything I do is fine because the goddess is inside of me. But then I think about like, on the other side of that, like someone like Emily Dickinson, who's like, you know, fighting the kind of authority and the patriarchy of like God being having to be at a church. So there's this I just have so much ambivalence around all of that kind of decentering, recentering, who, how you empower and how you don't overpower, you know, like all of that kind of is really kind of trying to figure that out in the photographs. There's a lot else in that picture I could sit here and, and ruminate on, but another time, because I, I want to shift to another mm. body of work, say the rail and road pictures, which are astonishingly different from the girl pictures in not just subject, but in composition and possible narrative or intentional narrative, depth of field, yada, 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 yada. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so one of the decisions at the heart of that body of work was a, a willingness to feature your son, Casper, who we mentioned a moment ago. A little earlier on, we talked about your interest in there being or, or responding to or engaging with the matrilineal line of descent. Was your decision to feature Casper informed by, say, 
well, I mean, the, the example I had in mind, of course, was Sally Mann's use mm-hmm. of her and her husband, Larry's kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess you could also say Emmett Gowan and his, he and his wife's Edith's kids too. Was, was your willingness to feature Casper informed willingness to feature her kids? I love Sally Mann's photographs. I really, I really admire her. I just read her biography too. It was really interesting to hear. She's a great writer. Yeah, I mean, I think I did it also because it's something that you're not supposed to do. You know, when I was in graduate school, like the kind of like cool kids poo-pooed Sally Mann as being sentimental, you know, that so the kind of like misogyny around like motherhood is so still strong and clear. Like, you know, it would be it's fine to make work about your drug habit. It's fine to make work about your you know, any number of personal experiences, but the moment you make work about children, it becomes sentimental. And I remember one of my teachers at Yale, Lori Simmons, I remember her saying that she always hid the fact that she had children in the art world because there was like this phrase where people would often say like, oh, she was a good artist until she started having children. And the implication then is you become a kind of bovine oven or something, I don't know. So... I think I I wanted to feature Casper as a kind of also a, a fuck you to that idea where I was just going to, you know, that it was my reality. And what else was I going to do when I first, you know, when I first had Casper, I had no idea how to make work with a kid. And I got I had postpartum depression. I was very, very depressed. I didn't make work for a it wasn't that long, actually. It was maybe six months. But for me, I'm I'm pretty prolific. It was a long period. And I finally just built up a bed in the back of the van and began making pictures with him. I think there's a picture of the bed in the series. Yes. Yeah. His his being there changed the way that I could work and and yeah, changed everything about the pictures. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like Highway Kind, the book that I made that he's featured in, is really an homage, like a love letter to him. It's it's all about him. But he's only in like 15 of the 85 plates. Like it's he's really not in very That's many. true. Plates. My favorite of the pictures he's in, and maybe my second or third favorite in, in kind of that whole broad body of work is a picture called, well, it's a picture that's called What It Is Of, which is a little bit unusual in your oeuvre, perhaps. Um, it's called Waiting for Trains While Playing with Trains. Mm-hmm. We'll have it on manpodcast.com, of course. But he's he's like in the desert playing with toy trains and behind him, a train is going by. So there's often kind of a wisp of narrative, suggestion of narrative, reference to the possibility of narrative in your work. This is a picture that is a complete narrative contained between foreground and rear ground white train, colored trains on Casper's table, childhood, adulthood, American, it's past relationship to the land, future relationship to the land. I mean, every possible narrative thread is just booming across this picture. Long way of asking, did you know you were doing that? Was was the idea to have a kind of a complete generational narrative about child and adulthood, America and nature, 19th and 21st centuries all happening at once? That was so beautifully put. I mean, yes, that was definitely what I was aiming for. I'm sure I couldn't have articulated it as beautifully as you as you just did. But the the playing with trains came first, you know. So when I was 
bringing Casper around on these road trips and we were spending eight months of the year living out of a van, I had these Tupperware containers with all of these toys. And I, I've never had a lot of money, but I, I guilt shopped like, like really beautiful trains. Like I'm also like very fetishy too. So we would go to train museums and, you know, Casper taught me to love trains. I mean, they were just always there when I was driving around, but he was the one that opened my eyes so that I could see them and think about the way they operated in this kind of figurative and, and literal levels, the way that they shape the American landscape, the way that they are now these kind of, you know, post-capital rusty arteries that are bringing things from shopping malls to landfills to like shipping yards back and forth. So there's all of these- Especially coal too. So there's the climate change. Yeah, I just want- The climate. No, no, no. And the very first train about people mark Anthropocene by the first first train. So all, all of that is kind of going on in my in my mind when I, I when I'm observing I mean that's the kind of the beauty of watching children play is that you understand that it's very serious and that it, it echoes that they I don't know why kids love trains like I I tried to like give him dolls to play with you know I tried to give him like fairy wings you know but he really wanted trains and so there's something about his joy his just unadulterated joy of trains that made me love them too. And so we would go to all these rail viewing spots. And so we were talking before about the Tehachapi loop. Loop. Oh, we're going to get there. But we would go to these places that were designated train spots and we would wait. I I was really bad at figuring out, like it's there's all of these websites where you can kind of know when the train is going to come or how many times a day it comes. But we'd often be waiting for hours and hours and hours And so we would play with the trains. And then when the train came, Casper would have to name the car, every car that went by. So if it was like three miles of hoppers, he would say hopper, 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 hopper. And so he was like, there's this weird way that he was channeling in the toy, the actual thing, like manifesting the Mm. landscape from this kind of diorama. So it's like, it is, it was a, it was a very surreal kind of experience to to witness. The narratives in that series of work are every bit as strong in pictures that don't feature him, which as you noted a moment ago is the vast majority of them. And you've talked before about how particularly in this series, your pictures are very often, you know, addressing a fantasy of of what our national identity is. And that's a quote I've thought about a lot in terms of a 2008 picture called like a black snake, which presents a black train moving through a distant landscape, distant, distant, distant. And it looks like it's a snake coming across the desert, which is a fascinating picture for lots of reasons. Of course, during the Civil War era, the favored Northern metaphor for the Confederacy is that it was a snake in especially Presbyterian 19th century America. The West was was America's, air quotes, empty Eden, a garden into which white America and its republicanism might expand. And then, of course, as the century went on, it became increasingly common to talk about the Edenic West as having been infiltrated by, say, the octopus, the railroad, or or by snakes. All, all of which is to ask, when you made Like a Black Snake, was it just a great get? Because it's a great get. Or were you mindful of the range of historical associations you were packing into that picture? When you list them, I'm like, wow, yeah, it was eye-opening. So yes, of course, I was thinking about 
you know, the kind of politics and the history of like how the land use and, and the, the ways in which capitalism and the ways in which expansionism and colonialism is playing out and where I was thinking maybe with that as more of just a kind of a literal replacement of the natural world for this train. So maybe not as many of the, I didn't know as many of the references, but I, I was at the time researching about trains. I was, you know, and so like there mm. were, there were things that I was, yeah, but maybe not as, as specific as, as the way that you were. A lot of the way that I, I think I was working is I was just, I was out there all of the time and there would be these things that like, I mean, eight months is a long time to be there. And most of the time I'm making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for my kid. Right. And then it's like, holy crap like I can see everything and like all of a sudden it all makes sense in certain ways and one of the things about being on road trips as a mode of making pictures is you're so emptied out there's no distraction you're like you know it's the light changes and all of a sudden that's like you know so dramatic that's the biggest drama of your day you know well that's not true when you're with a kid there's lots of other dramas but it's quite spectacular just being there and, and witnessing one of the places you visited for that series of work was the Tehachapi Loop, which is in eastern Kern County, California. It's a remarkable place, not just because the guy who wants to be Speaker of the House is from there, but it's a remarkable place where the southern end of the Sierra Nevada is joined to the coast ranges by an unusual east-west running mountain range that, among other things, basically created the Mojave Desert in its rain shadow. So it's a pretty remarkable spot ecologically. But also in terms of American history, it's the site of the Tehachapi Loop, which was a famous 1870s construction by the Southern Pacific Railroad that allowed, literally allowed a Southern Transcontinental Railroad to be constructed. You've been there, obviously. I've been there. And, and so maybe better than people who haven't been there, I have a uh, an understanding of how the easy to picture, the easy picture to make there is the loop, because it's it's just an insane engineering and construction thing. The easy thing is to look at the loop. Okay, you didn't do that. What did you want to get in that picture? And what did you want to not get in that picture? I kind of want to like step back and talk a little bit about the the decision to photograph trains and kind of the way that in Highway Kind, there's there's an intersection of three different types of images. So I have a lot of photographs of trains in the landscape. There's other photographs of my life with Casper on the road. And then the third group, so I would say trains in the landscape would be like the kind of the epic mode. My life with Casper is the kind of documentary mode. And then I have all of these train riders, wilderness squatter, people who are on Hobo. the hobos, which for me, those were, that was my, my fantasy of like, they were my teenage girls basically. And so when I photographed the trains in the landscape, I would talk to a lot of rail fans. I would go to rail fan websites. I would read about these innovations. But what I didn't want to do in the pictures was to make the photographs the thing that they were. I wanted I wanted the mm. photographs to be this kind of idea, I, but I didn't want them to be like, you know, when you Google, you know, the Tagapache loop and in, in this is this is what you come up with. I wanted and I remember showing my photographs to the, the rail fans that I was friends with that I had met. They were like really disgruntled. They were like, these are terrible photographs because they, you know, there's very it's very prescribed how you're supposed to photograph a train. There's like the three quarters view, you know, you get the two trains kissing. There's like there's certain like tropes to train photography. 
And what I was really interested in doing, which goes back to that idea of the black snake, was talking about the trains so that they are both these kind of like innovations of, you know, but also that they're 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 part of the landscape now. Like the way that if you go on a satellite, you can see you can see railroad tracks and highways from the sky. And so I was more interested in thinking about letting them get subsumed into the landscape and, and having them be almost secondary to the photograph so that it wasn't about this kind of heroic moment of trains, but the idea that the trains are there chugging away anyway, indifferent to us or something. So it was a, it was teetering in that, like, I don't know. I went to, I went to Caliente Pass was another big rail fan. Mm. I was at the Feather River Canyon. I went to a mm. lot of places where there's like these Donner Pass, a lot of places where there's scenic, views for trains and i wanted to make the scenic views but there's all of this kind of ambivalence where if it was too much like that picture that already exists then i wasn't going to be good for me i was struck by how your donner pass picture is not at all american and how it's very roman very kind of actually speaking of claude it's very claude Lorraine. and and i thought it was really interesting that this site that bierstadt and watkins and then later alfred hart and, and Timothy O'Sullivan and others did in a very specific way at a site of particular violence where the Central Pacific burst through, thanks to nitroglycerin, Sierra granite, you did it in a totally different way. So, but the other kind of picture that came to mind That's as you were talking was Keddie Y mm-hmm. from 2007, which doesn't have a train in it, but has, I'm going to see if I can put this gingerly, tracks meeting and referencing parts of the female body. Yes. <laughs> It is almost a rejection of the male-centric train world that we see in the hobos or that we see in Casper's obsession with the trains. It's kind of a, I don't, I don't think you made it. In fact, I'm sure you didn't make it at the end of the series, but it feels like a wave goodbye Mm -hmm. and a body of work. I guess the last group of work I want to talk about is the scum manifesto work in which I'm going to say this horribly. I should have put it in my notes so I could have read it. Basically it's you taking on the standards of of 20th century dude photography and mm-hmm. cutting them apart and putting them back together in ways that are um, sometimes very funny, often it's very funny. funny. Yeah. 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 Funny. In fact, kind of like the, the one that isn't funny is the one that's about Jay DeFeo, the Rose, which is fun, but not funny. Right. So I, I guess the- cute that you said that. So just to kind of, for the listeners, it was in 2019 I was invited by the Whitney actually to talk about Andy Warhol, who I'm not a fan of Andy Warhol. The person who asked me is basically my fairy godmother, someone I could not say no to. So I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out a way to talk about Andy Warhol. And what I did was I went into a very, very deep research wormhole about Valerie Solanas. And I got really interested in her manifesto, the scum manifesto, Society of Cutting Up men which is a satire s-c-u-m we should say um in your body of work you had a b sorry didn't mean that so my book is society for cutting up men's books with a silent b at the end so it's kind of one thing led to another thing i mean the photo book world has been exploding since the early 2000s and it's this amazing thing i i teach and i i encourage all of my students to make books because it's this incredibly democratic medium where you don't have to wait for Gagosian to call you. You can put your work out in the world. You can find a finished form for it. It's this, it's not that expensive to self-publish. You can distribute. 
it's this amazing thing. But in the explosion of the photo book world, it had become a real boys club. I mean, it was always a boys club. And maybe because it's such a niche, unlike other art forms that have more air in them, because the photo book world is so airless, it's so insider, it was really brewed out. And I realized at a certain point that like 99% of my books were by men. And it wasn't because I didn't want books by women, but it's just that 99% of books published are by men. It's actually the number is something like 80%. There's a book 10 by 10 did a anthology of women's photo books. And I talked to the editor and she said that out of all of the photo books, it's 10% for, it starts with wow. Anna Atkins, 1820. Seven twenty. No, it was later. Anna Atkins' book up until two thousand. Only ten percent are are by women. Twenty percent are by women. So if I, I could started... interject for a second, it makes yeah. your note earlier that you were pushed away from pictorialism because that is a rare place in the history of photography where women held substantial sway. Yes, true. I took the actual books in my library, my own personal library books by sometimes my teachers, sometimes people I, I'm friend, friendly with, all books I admire that I had lived with, that I had looked at, that I had taught my, to my students that are, you know, for better or worse, the canon of photography. That is really a canon that when I was a student at Yale, John Zarkowski, who was the curator of photography at MoMA, was one of my teachers there. And he really single-handedly decided what a photograph could or could not be. And I've been so indoctrinated in modernism. It's crazy how much of it is inside of me. So when I first cut the very first book, like my hands were shaking, like these were very precious things to me, but it was amazingly freeing, like literally freeing space in my bookshelf, but like mm -hmm. psychically freeing to realize that again, to go back to that Tanisha Coates quote. Ta Ta-Nehisi Coates, yeah. Ta-Nehisi Coates. Thank you. That I could take authorship of these of these images. And the more I cut, actually, the more I realized just like how insipid this this history is, how narrow it is, how exclusive it's been. And so I've yeah, I made the collages by cutting the literal pages and gluing them into the into the books themselves, into the splayed cover of the book. I've continued to make the collages. And it's interesting that you talked about the the one, the rose after Jada Feo, where the newer collages are less about the concept of cutting men's books, but more now about me finding my own language and again, finding this matrilineal history. So I've been thinking a lot about flowers and female anatomy and the idea of onions and the idea of folding and how collage works where the literal margins are brought into the middle and things are folding into itself. And it becomes such a kind of an important strategy of hybridity and making something new out of what is no longer useful that now the collages have their own type of form that is based on, based on this radial form. And so it is less funny because it's more about like kind of figuring something out about form and figuring out something about how to reinterpret these books. And a celebration for that matter. I mean, that work is a celebration of the body, of DeFeo, of women's bodies, of an artist's ability to remake and so on. So one of the things about the Scum Manifesto pictures that struck me is that in taking on Bob Adams or Robert Kappa or Gary Winogrand, by the way, the taking on Gary Winogrand's pictures of women is uh, women are beautiful pictures is particularly funny or Larry Clark and so on in, in a way 
you're affirming their place in the canon as something to be reckoned with, which is something that has been a constant in your approach since you were a student, is how you reckon with that line between deconstruction and interrogation on one side and confirmation of place and import on the other. Is it the same as when you were a student or has it changed over the last 25, 30 years? Wait, I think I need you to ask the whole question again. Oh my God. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Um, I'm sorry. No, that's all right. We do this all the time. You, you, um, you were talking first about the, um, well, just, just maybe you could start again. Yeah. Sorry. Um, So in taking, Taking so in the scum. Well, I would say that when I'm making Casper, Casper David Friedrich, you know, a girl picture, it's in a, like a queer girl picture. I think I am undermining something already. No, I think you are work. too. Yeah, yeah. I think that you're asking a really great question about what to do with history because if you if you take it on, you recenter it, right? Like, how mm. am I not reascribing? You know, so what what do you do with that history? And I think that I made some choices in the book, like their names are not in it, and. I think that I'm also, I'm doing it for myself. So it's like, they're already there. So it's not like, I I can pretend they're not there, but they are there. And so for me, it's more empowering to confront that they're being there, to make something else out of it, to renew it, to make it my own, rather than to try to step around them. Because there's really no space to step around, actually. Like, I I don't know what's, what, like, genre of photography is left, you know, I, I think that actually maybe pictorialism and abstract photography have been these kind of outliers that women have been maybe more recognized in. But in the storytelling, in the way that photography can make real or authenticate experience, that has been the domain of men, you know? So, and I think the other thing about these books is that often they're photographing women, you know? So that's, there's something there's something really important to me in thinking about like is it possible to do away with a male gaze like like is there such thing as a female gaze or or does there is there only a male gaze because of the power dynamics that allow for men's point of view to be the dominant one you know so those are really all just kind of great questions and the thing about making the work is there's no answer to those questions I was working through through that idea of what to do with history but just also on a side note to say I was I teach and I I had this class of sophomores I was teaching a a black and white printing class I I teach all sorts of like from theory to technical to all sorts of classes critique classes and I just decided that I would show a slideshow to my to my students and it's a photo school it's an art school so they have art history and I was I was like oh well of course you guys know you know Walker Evans or of course you know Robert Frank and they didn't know because now it's so surprising to me because now it's at the new school at Parsons they are decolonizing their syllabus they're they're taking out those canonized photographers and showing them like you know Malik Sedebe instead or something and it's a really disorienting interesting like what happens when you pull the rug out and then we don't have like when I went back to when I was like creating language we both uh, everyone agrees that this thing is a plant but if like we don't all have a, a similar idea it becomes very difficult to talk about but difficult I think in a good way but it's also I'm very ambivalent about the whole thing you know I'm not sure which is I'm not sure what to do about it well removing removing work 
from the canon rather than interrogating it for its impacts and mm -hmm. and ideology is a popular art world strategy of the moment mm -hmm. in a really problematic way and one of the things i really like about the scum manifesto works so take for example the the two well it's one work but it's a recto and a verso called women are beautiful Mm -hmm. um, and it is obviously uh, almost literally making a dartboard out of Gary Winogrand's spectacularly sexist, but are beautiful book. And, and so you kind of address it with a wink, you know, you, you as you do in a lot of the scum manifesto pictures, you're using a er erasure, cutting mm -hmm. out, mm -hmm. cutting out something in this case, silhouettes of women central to the work, but also on the back of women are beautiful. Your women are beautiful you kind of use that silhouette to attack, maim, dartboard eyes, the, the, the title page of Women Are Beautiful. And, and I think so one of the things, what I'm using too many words to say is that you're not deleting the erasing the problematic but influential work. You are interrogating it for its ideologies and offering mm -hmm. other ways forward, which I imagine was kind of like the whole idea which was probably yeah, yeah. just the germ of the whole thing. It's really yeah. clear in that one. No, thank you so much for saying that. I mean, collage as a form is like, you know, cutting is violent. It's it's a destruction. But the gluing and putting back together is is reparative, you know? And 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 yeah, it definitely is about thinking about it. There's one of the ones in the in the in the book is the a Weston. I basically made the girls in the sand picture again. I made an yeah. orgy with that but it's kind of hard to see but i have the back of the co the cover that i that i glued it on was a paperback that i had and it had a picture of him with like an you know author's picture and so when i glued it there's a little bit of him underneath that kind of pops through as well which i i was like <laughs> i remember that picture <laughs> that but i can't funny. immediately find it but i do remember it yeah but that's similar to the way that the, i think that the title page works also as a kind of a remake a recasting of, of that but it's, I think it's interesting to think about how that picture is. I, I didn't even realize it until I said it just now that I was, it's basically the same fantasy of an orgy in the sand. In a way, the work in Scum Manifesto is the same thing. I think so. Um, at least one side of it, I should say. <laughs> Finally, in the Scum Manifesto pictures, there are two collages, two works of your name. Yes. Why? I've actually made three thought so I, I've, I've just only seen the two <laughs> i made three of my name and it started when i was cutting up robert adams cottonwoods it was kind of a joke like you know when you go to the campground and campground is written all in wood i was like had all these pieces of wood and i was like trying to figure out what to make out of them so i you know this is how i work i just intuitively wrote my name out of it just like making myself laugh literally making myself laugh but then I was really, I got really invested in the idea of writing my name because of the, this question of authorship and ownership and the aesthetics of ownership and like, and how could I really like, kind of like really double down on what I was doing was to put my name, you know, to be like, this is that this is not even an appropriation. I'm not appropriating. I'm, I, this is like a full on, I, I take ownership of this. There's a writer named Lisa Robertson who has a book called The Baudelaire Fractal that starts where she says that she wakes up realizing that she had written everything that Baudelaire ever wrote. Not that she is Baudelaire. She's not Baudelaire. She just 
is the author of all Baudelaire's work. And that's a different type, like appropriation has existed in all of these different forms as a, a strategy. But the idea that I've just like, I mean, I guess the closest person I could think who does it is um who's the one who did the walker evans photograph where it's she just remakes the same photograph big collection at the walker arts center sherry levine sherry levine thank you for that i I think like she's the closest one who's like appropriation is theft you know and so like what what like what is that how could that look like but then i went on to think about you know and i think i'm also like yeah like what does it mean to say to say a name so i did another one for valerie zolanis and then the last one in the book is for Lorena Bobbitt, who is also a cutter, um, which <laughs> I think you have to be like that. our age know to that. know to know who <laughs> Lorena Bobbitt is. But that was like, there's so many, I don't know, that's a, a kind of. Google it, kids, L-O-R-E-N-A. <laughs> you know, one of the things I thought about the, the, you know, air quotes, Justine's, when I was in elementary school, which of course is before you were in elementary school, but not by a lot. The girls in my class would write their names over and over again in a notebook yes. and they'd write yes. it differently. And it was a way of, it was a very self-conscious way of kind of remaking mm-hmm. self. And so in a way, the Justines in Scum Manifesto almost seem like a continuation of the construction of a circle begun in the girl pictures, mm. doing doing a girl move. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. I haven't, Yeah. I definitely wrote my name many, many, many times. <laughs> yeah. Justine Curlin, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.